And we haven't said anything irreverent yet. So if you got anything irreverent, let's make sure we get it out of the way. Let's make sure we say it. It'll come out whether we try it or not. It's just, you know, it's part of who we are. Welcome to the Three Wise Men of Divorce, Money, Psych, and Law podcast. Sit down with the California divorce experts, financial divorce consultant Mark Hill, marriage and family therapist Pete Russos, and attorney Sean Weber for a frank and casual conversation about divorce, separation, co-parenting, and the difficult decisions real people like you face during these tough times. We know that if you are looking at divorce or separation, it can be scary and overwhelming. With combined experience of over 60 years of divorce and conflict management, we are here for you and look forward to helping by sharing our unique ideas, thoughts, and perspectives on divorce, separation, and co-parenting. Welcome, everyone, to the Wise Men of Divorce podcast. Uh, I'm Mark Hill, and together with my co-hosts, Peter Russo's MFT and Sean Weber, illustrious family law attorney, we're going to talk about the concept of settlement readiness. What does it take to get a couple to the point where they are ready to settle a case? We work in alternative dispute resolution. So um, you can't get coerced into this. You have to be ready. And I've always argued you need to be ready financially. In other words, understand the money and understand what your life is going to look like post-divorce from a financial standpoint. Understand your legal rights and obligations. And sometimes what even might happen if this case were to go to court. And also from a psychological standpoint, you need to be ready to truly let the relationship go in its current form and perhaps created in a reconstituted you know, I, I appreciate that you said that we're an alternate dispute resolution because if you go to court, nobody cares whether you're ready. Exactly. They're just, you go to court and a lot of times you're not ready and then you're not sure what really happened at court until your attorney explains it afterwards. And uh, I've heard you describe it as a violation. That's how it felt one time to me, yes. You know, I think even in the context of alternative dispute resolution, that goes back to what we talked about last time, the notion of a mission statement, you know, do people want to be ready for a grit your teeth settlement or do they want to be ready for something that, that uh, feels collaborative and sets the stage for a future relationship as co-parents, for example, um, that they can feel good about, that's healthy about. So it's even, it's, it's, it's settlement readiness is nuanced and still driven by I think the the goals and objectives that people hopefully define for themselves at the outset about where they want to arrive. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in the court process. Hmm. No, I mean... You're, you're ne- it's never thinking in terms of outcome, but more in terms of how can I maximize my benefit right now? And that's why it ends up often being very poor in the long term, because the focus can be so short term. I need support right now. I want as much as I can get. Well, it, it becomes warfare and the relationship be damned. Exactly. You yeah. know, I, I, a lot of times, you know, I, I, we, I always say this, Mark, I, I get it that when people come to my office, it's not because things are butterflies and rainbows and fairy dust, but they've not been getting along. They've had there's a reason why we're here and getting a divorce. 
but maybe we can honor what was good about the relationship. So you can kind of have that quote unquote good karma kind of divorce where you, uh, you can leave with not as horrible of a taste in your mouth. But we also get those cases where people are absolutely, they hate each other and they still want to be able to be ready to settle. And sometimes it's based around the fact that there are children and they feel a responsibility to the child in a way perhaps they don't towards their soon-to-be ex-spouse. Or, or they don't want to do any more damage to their nest egg than they've already done. That's the case sometimes too. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, what we're talking about now is maybe, uh, I think one of the challenges that the professionals in these cases face in terms of how we manage our own expectations and what's what the difference for us between working with with those uh, couples where both people are really committed to a grit your teeth kind of settlement and the emotionality that goes with that that we then have to manage and try to shepherd them through versus those other cases where people really are interested and committed and invested in coming from what's best in them to arrive at something that is going to be more healthy and collaborative. And willing to take a journey themselves in this Mm -hmm. process. Um, I had a call today with a lady that uh, I've been working on her case for a little over a year. And she was very much the stay-at-home spouse, didn't really, you know, understand what was going on with husband's business and the money, Um, focused on raising three children. Um, And... She said to me today, she said, you know, you said this to me a year ago, Mark, that I would grow in this and become more confident. And I don't recall saying that, but I do say that to people. And she said, it's happened. I'm managing my own budget. I'm confident. I know I I go into the meetings now ready to ask my questions as opposed to being embarrassed that my question might be stupid. Mm. And I think that that's a journey from somebody who's willing to look at themselves, understand their shortcomings and try to work on them throughout the process. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's the reward for me, frankly, when that happens in a case, I, mm-hmm. it, it's like, it, yes, sometimes it's just getting the case done and it's triage at the end. And we just have to get the deal cut. Um, but, and it's unsatisfactory, but the work is completed. Right. This is work that will be completed with the, reward for the professional of actually seeing somebody grow. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a part of, okay, so that's one of the elements of settlement readiness. I was going to ask you, well, what does it mean to be settlement ready? But one of the elements is the ability to be able to negotiate on your own behalf, to be able to come into a meeting with both of your feet on the ground and 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 your your head in the game and ready to start talking about what the settlement will be. Yes. And, and Pete, we've seen this. Some people mm-hmm. just aren't there yet. They're, they can't right. even, they're so horrified by the fact that they're getting divorced that they can't even think about what makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and actually, as we're, as we're talking about it, and you guys tell me if this is going a bit far afield, but I, I think what, what we as professionals often, often have to assess is, you know, if people are coming into mediation or ADR because they think it will be less expensive, but they're not prepared to be collaborative. Those are the really challenging cases. You know, those are the ones that I think often we might limp through to a settlement, but they can be brutal cases, brutal yeah. for the people and brutal for the professionals. 
Well, and and and, and reaching the resolution, or let me rephrase that: reaching the understanding that the person you're divorcing is still the person you're divorcing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to suddenly change, have a you know a brain transplant, a personality transplant, just because you filed a petition. Mm-hmm. And so, I've seen, I've seen you say this. I've heard Sean say this to people when you hear. The one client saying how awful their spouse is and so on, he will pause and look at them and say, you know, you might want to consider a divorce. <laughs> and, and, and it breaks it to the point because that's right. That's why I am getting rid of him slash her. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the reason why I'm divorcing this turkey. You know, but it, I mean, like I said, it, we, we, we get it. There's a reason why you're here. Mm-hmm. But don't expect that all of a sudden this person is going to change and be a wonderful, kind, understanding negotiator. Mm-hmm. They're going to be who they are. And then you've got to make sure that you bring to the table who you are and, and, and have the capability to be able to advocate for yourself, even if you've hired attorneys, but mm-hmm. to be able to wrap your head around what is happening so that you can make decisions in a rational way. It takes some work for some people to get to that point. Because I, I, I've seen people, you know, they just go right into that fight or flight mode. That, that you know, that adrenaline thing where they just kind of, their prefrontal cortex stop, shuts down and they're left with their lizard brain. And they're just thinking about survival. You know, am I going to kill this person or am I going to run for my life? <laughs> so so that, you're, you're talking about a more reactive dynamic. I'm wondering in some ways about the inverse. Those couples who, who come in who have been so disengaged in in part because they're mm. conflict avoidant, you know, and how they each find the courage to do what you're talking about, Sean, but which is to engage and to define what they want. And to well, be yeah. And isn't that the flight? Like we have the mm-hmm. flight on the one hand and we have the fight on the other hand. Mm-hmm. And there's some people that I just want to avoid this conflict. And, and, and those cases can be really challenging because the real issues don't come out until you're, you believe you may believe you have a settlement in place. And somebody will go, well, we never talked about A, B, C, and D. And you go, well, you never raised A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to upset her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we better talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had a, a, a conversation with someone that I was close to where I kind of told my truth and said it in a very clear way. I wasn't mean, but I just laid it out there. This is what I think is happening, and this is the boundary that I think you're crossing, and I'm not okay with this. And then this person said to me, well, I thought you were a conflict resolver. That was really conflictual and that was very strong. And, <laughs> and, and I remember saying, well, you know, conflict, you know, peace is not achieved by avoiding conflict. Peace is achieved by managing conflict. And you can't manage conflict unless you know what the conflict is. And so sometimes people have to have the courage to just lay it out on the table. What is this that we are fighting about or upset about so that we can then resolve it. And one thing I've seen someone like Pete do is help people do that in a way that doesn't rehash the fights of the last 25 years in the marriage. (laughs) You know, I statements as opposed to you always, I never get the chart. You always, and as opposed to my experience of what happens when this occurs is as follows. You can't argue with that one. But if I say, you always do that to me, well, what kind of reaction am I going to get? So again, helping with some communication coaching for 
hopefully in their new reformed relationship if they have children, uh, but just as, a, as a, almost like a device to help them through meetings so they get to say their piece, but at the same time don't trigger a reaction. That is so powerful to have that resource at the table for us. I, I really like that when statement comment or if statement. When you talk about your 401k like it's 100% yours and you're not going to share it with me, it makes me frightened for my future. You know, that kind of statement is much more effective. You always threaten me with your 401k. <laughs> well, it's, it's the, you know, the difference between being honest in an appropriate way, which is really the most important, I think, intention that people can have and being honest in an inappropriate way. Mm. Um, you know, the, and I think another aspect of this is um, how we teach people that they really have a responsibility to pick their battles. What are the things that they have to they have to litigate as part of a healthy settlement process and a moving forward, and and the longstanding battles that that serve no purpose in terms of perpetuating not only through a settlement process but to the uh, a post divorce co parenting relationship. Uh, how many times? <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. Huh? Well, so what what you're saying is that you know. Being honest by saying, yes, those genes do make your butt look bad is perhaps <laughs> not the best policy, right? There's ways, you know, that I'm just being right. honest. Right. What do you want? Oh, honestly, you look but, terrible listen, in those genes. How many times do we hear uh, in, in cases uh, a person say something inflammatory and, the, and then defend it by saying, well, that's just how I feel? Right. Yeah. I can't help. I had one lady. I can't help it. I'm Portuguese. <laughs> I have to say this. I'm like, no, you don't. You're not. You're not a computer. Just because I push a button doesn't mean that something has to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how many times have you heard this one? Um, I I thought I was married to someone else, and then I found out he had affairs with women, and now I don't know who I married, and I can't trust him at all. And I don't trust a word he says now. I mean, we hear that a lot. And it's rational. I thought I could trust him in the most important promise he made to me in the world, which was our marriage vows. And now, you know, before God and the priest and everybody. But now that turned out to be a lie. That's how I'm perceiving it. And now I think he's going to lie to me about um, what's in his bank accounts. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you do about that, Mark? I step in and I go, you know what? It's very hard to hide anything because everything's tied to every account's tied to a social security number. I try and go through how challenging it is to hide money. And sometimes <laughs> we, it, it really is these days. I mean, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, all I had to see was, uh, you know, Royal Bank of Canada or something in the Cayman Islands, and I knew I was in trouble. Now you can have accounts all over the world, but they have to be disclosed. And if someone's willing to lie on their tax return and commit a federal crime, um, hopefully we would identify that kind of character in the collaborative or the mediated process. Uh, One of the things that scares the unmoneyed spouse is the idea that their spouse is the the smartest guy in the room, so to speak, will come in and charm everybody and snow everybody under. Yeah, you I'm don't yet, understand how slick he is. Exactly. You know, I've yet to find a client that knows more than me 
and that includes some lawyers <laughs> about the divorce <laughs> process and money, frankly. You know, and that's why I've done this for so long, is to be able to say that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've had so many clients that think they know how to hide money, and it never goes well. You know, it always it always comes out, especially if you have professionals helping you get to the bottom of things. And, you know, it's, it's trust, but verify. Exactly. And also tell the story about the Los Angeles lottery winner who forgot to announce to her soon-to-be husband that, uh, you know, she'd won the lottery. And when he found out, the judge awarded 100% of the winnings to the husband. Not yeah, that's the famous Rossi case. Yeah, exactly. The- so, so again, you tell that story, and I, I will often do it in front of both clients on a joint call. Mm-hmm. Not that you guys would ever do this, but this is how serious it is. That's the way I put it. Yeah. The court can do really mean things to people that don't disclose. Yeah, and and we always find out. That's what I always say. We always know. Yeah. You know, I think that there's also uh, the linkage between somebody coming into a process with those kinds of fears, questioning, does this other person have their their best interests at heart? Um, And what it is that they aspire to vis-a-vis a a future relationship? Because I think the reality is, if somebody is is hoping that they're gonna be able to to collaborate as co-parents with the next partner, for example, the bottom line is if people are willing and able to define that kind of future relationship, the reality is, They've got to go forward being willing to risk finding out that their worst fears are true in order to find out that they're not true. (laughs) Alternative resolution is a, it is a leap of faith. Ultimately, it is a leap of faith. Just like uh, going forward and trying to affect change in terms of a co-parenting relationship. And so, I mean, what do you do when somebody says, um, that they absolutely positively 100% don't trust the other person. Um, if that's where they're operating from, then you know what is it they expect of the process? I would be concerned about a client who comes in with that mindset wanting to abdicate the responsibility they have for decision-making. Yeah, you can't let them do that. Yeah. I mean, I have said to clients who come in just, oh, he's he hides things. He's got so many accounts. You have no idea where, what he's doing. He's, you know, you'll never catch him. Well, you know, I've said to, I must, must I a half a dozen times to people, well, it's perfectly appropriate to go and hire a forensic accountant to do that work. That's not my qualification. We can do pretty good tracing in the office, but we're not forensic accountants and don't pretend to be. But we can hire someone like that. I think only on one occasion did we do that. Did you actually so, hire the forensic? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, I, and if I say half a dozen times, it's probably two dozen times this has come up. But it tends to, as you go through the process, part of what you're doing is, is building trust with both sides so that you can, A, get the data and then disseminate it in an understandable form to the unmoneyed spouse so that the the, the playing field becomes level. And that's the empowerment that the unmoneyed spouse hopefully gets to feel during the case so that they can go in with reasonable questions. They're not going to become the expert. They don't need to be. They've got resources at the table to help them. So I think that when we can assuage these fears but give sort of the off-ramp, to people if they need it. Yeah, you want a forensic accountant, we'll get you one. Don't worry. You know, we can do that. 
but let's try this first and see how comfortable you are with it. So that's how I approach that. And that really is the first pillar of readiness, isn't it? Do you have the data you need to be able to make decisions? Yeah. So, I mean, that, I mean, when we spend, I always call that informational stage at the beginning of the case, what in litigation they call the discovery process, but that is where we are gathering the data about everything, about the money, about the kids, about everything. And, and, do you have all of that information at your fingertips so that you can make reasonable decisions? And then the other piece of information I think that you mentioned before we got on the call or on this Zoom is, is um, do you have the legal information you need? So there's the financial information, there's the legal information. Do you have the legal information? Do you know what your rights are? Do you know what the other party's rights are? What are your vulnerabilities in your case? What are your strengths in your case? Are you aware of what your best case scenario could be if you went to court or what your worst case scenario could be if you went to court? Have you thought about how much peace and joy you will have just to have this behind you right now if you had an agreement today? You know, that, that's really huge. But, you know, and then the third pillar I think that we mentioned is um, are you emotionally ready to let go of this marriage? <laughs> Sometimes that's not always... A straightforward answer. I had one client who never did. 15 yeah. years later, she's still estranged from her children and mm. still trying to go after the guy. Every couple of years, I get a crazy email. Not a crazy email. I get an email from this lady who cannot let go of something that was settled 10 years or more ago. Still struggling with the pain of the, of the relationship ending. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's tragic. But we weren't able to help, and she wasn't able to be helped, is the way I would put it. You know, I think the, the, in some ways, the flip side of that, if you will, are those, those cases where we see uh, the partners who are willing to actually grieve the loss of the marriage together. That's part of the process. Yeah. Actually grieving and acknowledging what was the big picture of the relationship, the good the struggles, but that they do that grieving work as part of their, their dissolution process. Boy, that really would be that, that, you know, if we could see that more in cases, that would be a really mutual collaborative experience where people can mm-hmm. yeah. grieve together. A lot of times, and we see this a lot, and we talked about this before, is that, you know, there's those Kubler-Ross stages of grief where people start with an initial denial, and then there's bargaining, and then there's anger and depression and then they finally get to acceptance and what we find a lot of times is you have this leave or that's already done all of those stages and is that acceptance and is that's why they're in your office in the first place and then you have the person that just found out about it yesterday mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard to grieve together when you've had that kind of dynamic but what what suggestions would you make for people that are kind of at different stages in their grief and and can't synchronize that well, i think for the person who's out in front um you know, to recognize that they have had this chance, this processing that the other person has not had the opportunity to do. And one of the things, I think the thing that can be most painful for the, the person who is the, you know, the last to know, if you will, yeah. is that sense of, oh my God, how easy it seems to be for the leave or, and, you know, and the conclusions that they draw about what the marriage must not have meant to him or her. If they're so eager to leave, what did the marriage mean? And for that, for the, the, the person who is out in front 
to realize that if, if they want to not only complete their own grieving process, but to help the other person to grieve, it's important to acknowledge what the marriage did mean. What were the strengths? What were the challenges? To be patient. Are they willing to be kind? Are they willing to be compassionate? Are they willing to process? Um, and and it, sadly, I think it's the, rel- it, it's the relatively rare case where that happens. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I think it's important that we establish the, uh, at least as an invitation, the, the value and the importance of, of people going there. Um, yeah. I have so many of my clients in mediations that say, oh, we don't want to talk about this. This is, this is not a therapy session. They don't want to do couples therapy anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, but, but, you know, is I always say to them, it's really going to help you to get to settlement readiness. Mm-hmm. If we can have mm-hmm. a lot of clarity and sometimes talking about these painful things yeah. and being really open and honest about our grief and our, our hurt yeah. can help us get to where we need to go, you know, and, and potentially save you money. Yes. Well, they think they're wasting money by talking right. about it with me. Right. Yeah. With it. Right. But I'm like, no, no, when you talk about it here, that lubricates the ball bearing so that we can yeah. get to a, an agreement. And also it avoids you talking about it out there and having a fight about it and right. the next meeting when you come in. Right. Yeah. It's like when you put a, if you have a splinter in your finger and you don't do anything about it, it's going to fester and get pussy and kind of gross. But if you get that splinter out <laughs> and do what you need to do to treat it, treat it. But it hurts when you pull it out. Yeah, it does. It hurts sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> it does. And that's how people are. Don't you agree? Yeah. Well, um, this is a good conversation. I think I, I think it would be really helpful for folks when they're thinking about going in their case. just And, and knowing that it's a process, it's not going to be like they're to settlement readiness immediately. It may take them some time. But to think about getting to that legal, that econ, you know, that, that financial and the emotional, getting those three pillars together to make them ready to settle. And having, having an awareness to... of their spouse having to be there too. Sorry, Peter, mm-hmm. I interrupt. No, no, I I I I love the 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 way that we're talking about this and the importance of this information in terms of orienting people at the very, very start of the process. This is what it takes. This is what's going to help you. Um, I, th- I think that, uh, one, I think that, that um, it's this kind of information that helps settle people down. Yeah. Um, but, but two, I think there's, there's a, 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 it creates an expectation um, around something that is maybe more com- comprehensive than most people think is going to be involved or coming into it, think they want to be involved in. Um, and so I think by, by laying it out in this way, um, we do set the stage or the potential, create more of a ten- potential for those kinds of, I think what we all would regard as the, the ideal kind of case, the healthy kind of process between people ending a marriage. Yeah, I bet, in fact, for listening to you speak, I had a case in the last week where I had to do the financial reveal that showed they're spending about four to five thousand dollars a month more than they have income and have been doing for years. Mm. And wife was absolutely um, <laughs> in a position where she was shocked, but she dealt with it 
over two or three days. Now she understands a lot of stuff that's going on in the marriage, but it was a hard reveal. Mm-hmm. But we need to wrap up here, don't we? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, um, we can keep talking, but but yeah. Well, so Mark, if, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I'm talking over you. No, I was just going to say, if they need dispute resolution from a legal standpoint, how would they contact you, Sean? They would contact WeberDisputeResolution.com. Just visit that website, WeberDisputeResolution.com. That's Weber with one B, like the grill. And uh, we will match you with a dispute resolver that will help you settle your case. And MFT Extraordinaire, Peter Russo's, how would they contact you? You could to through my website, which is PeterRussos.com, P-E-T-E-R-R-O-U-S-S-O-S.com. S's as in Sam. And uh, if you need help on the financial side, understanding how this all works, go to my website, PACDivorce.com, P-A-C-D-I-V-O-R-C-E.com. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with another of these. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Three Wisemen of Divorce, Money, Psych, and Law. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and share with others who may be in a similar place. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and focused on a positive, bright future. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Every family law case is unique, so no legal, financial, or mental health advice is intended during this podcast. If you need help with your specific situation, feel free to schedule a time to speak with one of us for a personal consultation.